Welcome back to Stacktrace, a show about Apple news and rumors from a developer's perspective. I'm John Sundell, and I'm joined, like always, by my wonderful co-host, Mr. Guy Rambo. How's it going, Guy? Hi, John. I'm good. Awesome. And here's where it gets really interesting. We have, for the very first time ever, a guest with us here today. And it's a very special guest. He is the co-host of the Accidental Tech Podcast, as well as Analog and Casey on Cars. And he's also the world record holder for the very best pronunciation of Rambo's first name I've heard. <laughs> it's uh, Casey Liss. Welcome See, to the show, Casey. Hello. Thank you. Now, now I can't do it because I'm going to overthink it. See, if you hadn't <laughs> said anything, I'm sure at some point or another I would have been able to, to, to bring one out. But now I'll overthink it and it'll be like goo 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 instead, <laughs> instead of something intelligible. But hello. Thank you for having me, you guys. I'm really excited. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. So, Casey, what are your thoughts on the new Mac Pro? <laughs> uh, you know, I just hope that it's delayed forever. No, not really. Uh, yeah, well, with the new Mac, Mac Pro, it's funny. I, I almost kind of am wondering if when the time comes and then and the Mac Pro finally shows up, like, should I get one? You know, especially since I've been doing a lot more video editing and that sort of thing. I, I am of the opinion that for the kinds of software that most people write, you know, that isn't, you know, 11 gazillion lines of code. I don't personally think that I'm typically processor constrained, like the, the work I was doing up until very recently. And, and if you're not familiar with who I am, suffice to say, I, I worked a regular job and have recently left to go indie. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But even at my regular job, you know, I, I never felt like my 15 inch MacBook Pro was that particularly processor constrained. There were a couple of occasions, but it wasn't like an everyday thing. So for, for a developer, I never really understood the need for a Mac Pro, a full on Mac Pro, not a MacBook Pro, but a Mac Pro. But let me tell you what, with Final Cut, now I'm starting to change my tune a little bit. Now I kind of <laughs> wish, I, I kind of want every core I can get my hands on and as much RAM as I can stick into a machine. So who knows? How funny would it be if I end up with a Mac Pro before like Marco and John? That would be really funny. And it was also really funny that you answered this kind of joke question very, very seriously. And I love that. <laughs> me and Rambo, we were, me and Rambo, we were discussing like, what, what's the first question we should ask Casey? And we're like, let's totally ask him about the Mac Pro. <laughs> yeah, well, well, see, a month ago, I would have just grumbled and, and, and laughed or, or maybe given you like a verbal uh, middle finger or something like that. But now right. it's like my whole world is upside down. Now even I'm kind of thinking about it. Uh, it's yeah, a whole I new imagine. world, you guys. I don't know. Uh, whole well, new world. As someone who works uh, in an app that has a lot of C and Swift mixed? Uh, it's, oh yeah. Uh, I would like a Mac Pro. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> not terribly portable though. Mm, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's um, it's not portability is not the main selling point, but yeah, having a couple of extra cores to throw at these kind of problems would be awesome sometime. So uh, we usually like to start the show with this segment called What Are We Doing? Where we talk a little bit about kind of what we do right now, some of the projects we work on, or some of the like trips we've been taking or something like that. So as our guest, Casey, uh, why don't you go first? What are you working on right now? Sure. So uh, like I said a moment ago, I used to be a corporate stooge where I went to an office and wrote uh, iOS code every day. And in early July, I left that job in order to go independent and scratch several different itches that I hadn't had time to scratch before. And one of them, as you mentioned earlier, John, is this uh, YouTube series I'm creating called Casey on Cars, where I take a car and, and spend you know a little bit of time reviewing it. 
and and putting together a video about that. And so that's what I've been working on most recently. I just recently re- reviewed the Volkswagen Golf R, uh, which was very fun. I'm currently working on another one on a not performance car. Most of the cars I've done so far have been various stages of kind of hot rods and this one is just a regular car and so that's kind of been fun and interesting and uh, actually this coming thursday uh which is almost a week from now as we record i'm getting another car so i've been doing nothing but filming i i feel like a like a like a movie star you know because there's always cameras pointed <laughs> at my face now granted i'm the ones setting up the cameras <laughs> and pointing them at right. my own face but <laughs> nevertheless i've been doing a lot of that lately and then uh if and when that that train ever stops uh, I'm going to go back to working on a very, very small kind of utility iOS app that I don't have a lot to say about at the moment, but I started working on a few months ago and kind of put on mothballs. I know, Guy, you were talking about how, uh, I forget exactly how you phrased it, but your, you know, like projects folders, just this this wasteland of, of good ideas never really executed or graveyard. sometimes bad ideas. A uh, graveyard, yeah. And and that's exactly where my projects are as well. It's just a graveyard of of truly terrible to mediocre ideas that just never got completed. <laughs> and and this one is very, very small, and and it's uh, something that I feel like I can bite off, and, and I want to get back to that at some point. So I actually haven't written very much code in the last month or two. I've been, I've been living the YouTube creator life, which is to say Ooh. I have been making no money and have been living in Final Cut Pro. <laughs> it's been <laughs> nice. fun. So. You've been pivoting, as the startup people say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, with humongous air quotes. I've pivoted into video, something like that. Shall we turn (laughs) on the video for this podcast? Should should we do that as well? (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah, right. So what about you, John? What have you been up to? So I just came back home from a little bit of a vacation. Uh, Me and Rambo have been joking that over the last couple of days, my brain has been almost like turned off because I've actually been relaxing for the first time in a few years. Oh, good for you. Yeah, so I took a road trip with my new car, which we're also going to talk about a little bit later. Um, we're going to talk about cars because, you know, we have the perfect guest for that. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so I took a road trip to Sweden. I visited my family, some of my friends. I brought my dog there for the first time. Uh, it was a lot of fun. So I too haven't done that much coding. Uh, I turned my parents like guest house slash uh, storage place into a podcast studio for the day just to like record a podcast there that was a lot of fun <laughs> uh, but other than that I haven't worked on that many projects lately I am getting back into uh, working a little bit on my uh, new static site generator which is going to power the new version of my site Swift by Sundell yes please uh, yeah I know Rambo wants that because he also wants to use the same generator um, and of course, it uses my own uh, syntax highlighter, uh, which is kind of the uh, the bread and butter of that gen- of that site generator. Uh, so I've been working on that one lately, and I've kind of switched my thinking around it to I think that I'm going to publicly open source it. Uh, mm. I don't have I don't have a promise to make yet, but this is the kind of angle I'm working towards right now. So I'm adding a lot of tests and documentation and structuring the code a little bit better and things like that. So. Yeah, that's my main kind of hobby code project right now. And please give me early access to it. So I, <laughs> I will, I will. Yeah. I need to release my own blog. Uh, we've been talking about that. 
you know, since I'm here and I have everyone's attention, whether you like it or not, uh, let me formally request that I would love to hear how that works. So I, I presume you're talking about like th this will look through Swift code and do highlighting on that Swift code in HTML. Does that make sense? So like, you know, yeah, keywords exactly. are certain colors and so on and so forth. I would, yeah. you don't have to get into it now, but if and when the time comes, I would love to hear a deep dive on your thought process and execution on how that goes together. Because one of the things that I've always wanted to do as a developer, but never have really had the occasion to do, and this is kind of adjacent to that. I've never had the occasion to to write code that writes code. I dabbled right. with, uh, what is the Swift project? I can't even, I did the a sorcery one maybe? Yes, thank you. I couldn't even remember the name of it off the top of my head. Yeah. I dabbled with sorcery and it's very, very cool, but that's, you know, just leveraging a tool to write Swift code for you. And I've really always wanted to, and this is particularly uh, pertinent in the .NET world, which is where I used to live. Um, you know, there's, there's a really robust API for emitting .NET code. And I always wanted an excuse to do it. And I never found that excuse. And this is kind of the, the corollary to that in a way, right? You know, instead of emitting yeah. the code, you have to parse the code. And so we don't have to get into it now, but whenever that time comes, I would love to hear the, the nerdiest of nerdy deep dives into how that all works and, <laughs> and what you were thinking about in order to you know, land on whatever architecture, architecture you ended up on. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to share that. And um, just kind of the uh, very brief overview and kind of why I got into it. Well, I get into most of my kind of hobby projects just because I'm interested in it. And just like you, you know, metaprogramming for me is really fascinating. And I also used to do a lot of C-sharp.net and, you know, do use a lot of reflection and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's a really, really appealing kind of problem for me and, and you know, an appealing uh, way of coding. Um, but the, um, the syntax highlighter itself, it's the reason I started kind of working on it is because I'm currently using like a regex based one, but it doesn't really do things like hundred percent correctly. And I wanted something that was a little bit more smart and a little bit more easy to maintain rather than just maintaining like a whole bunch of regular expressions. Uh, so the way the syntax highlighter that I'm working on uh, kind of works is that it just has all these rules and it just like tokenizes the code and, and applies these rules to them to say like, well, this is a keyword, this is an import statement, this is a, a symbol, and it just uses all these kind of heuristics to kind of um, decide that. And my theory is that that will be easier to maintain as Swift changes because I can just tweak the rules. And it will also be easier to add support for like other languages or for other um, output methods, like instead of HTML, output an attributed string or something like that. Ooh. So, yeah, that's uh, that's the current thinking. It's a it's a very very fun project, and it's uh, I'm kind of doing it also like a little bit TDD style, and yeah, it's it's very fun to work on. Uh, so we'll we'll see where it's going to end up eventually, but yeah, it's a uh, it's ongoing project. I have a feature request slash idea. Before it's even shipped, you have a feature request. Of course. <laughs> um, maybe you could like have an index of known f Apple frameworks and the, the keywords could become links to the documentation. I'm just saying. Ooh, that would be a good idea. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So what about you, Rambo? What you, what you been up to lately? Well, I'm the opposite of you guys because I don't have a car and uh, I... <laughs> <laughs> you just fly helicopters instead. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I just listened to that. I Oh, my, my mouth hit the floor when I heard, oh, yeah, I just hopped in a helicopter. No big deal. I heard yeah. I heard you say it was cheap, and I and, and I, I recall you saying it was like seventy bucks or something like that. But still, yeah. my my mind cannot wrap. I just can't wrap my mind around the idea of just casually getting in a helicopter. Well, yeah. I am Mr. Rambo. <laughs> 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 Gotta live up to the hype, right? <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, I've been doing lots of coding uh, at the day job. We are working on a big transition, which, well, I can't really talk about because it's a secret project. Um, but yeah, I've been doing lots of coding and all of the Splunking stuff on the side, which takes a lot of time. And iOS 12 beta 5 has been uh, really, really good for me because they didn't really hide stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's like they want you to find it, you Ooh. know, it's like a PR um, plan that they have. Yeah, Maybe. Rambo will just do all that for us. It'll be good. Awesome. Cool. So speaking about the iOS 12 beta, we have some interesting information that you and others have found. So Rambo, why don't you tell us a little bit about the iOS 12 beta? You know, you just mentioned that a lot of things are visible. They're not very hidden. So what you've been spelunking this time and what have you found? There are some small things like um, the new AirPods wireless charging case, which appeared again and... We have seen it before in the leaked GM build of iOS 11, and it showed the new wireless charging case for AirPods with a status indicator uh, on the case, uh, on the external side of the case. So you can just drop it on top of your AirPower charging mat, which is vaporware at the moment. <laughs> and so you can see the, the status of the, the AirPods charging uh, when it's over your AirPower. So yeah, it showed up again. And apparently um, the <laughs> it was funny because uh, we did an, an aside uh, on 9to5Mac, which is like uh, a really low-key post. So it's not... Uh, highlighted anywhere but uh other media picked it up and kind of made fun of the fact that the only difference is the little status indicator <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah there, there's that um what do you guys think of uh, air power uh do we do we think it's coming uh, in september uh, I don't know. I don't know what to make of this. It's so unlike Apple to pre-announce. And I mean, all of us talking heads, and I include all three of us in that, we've talked this to death. But it's so weird for Apple to pre-announce stuff. And I, I got to imagine that there was an oops that has mm -hmm. caused this delay. Like, I can't imagine if they were this far from release, or if they knew they were from the, this far from release, that they would have announced it. When was it? It was WWDC 2017, is that right? It was the September event. So Oh, it's a September event, okay. Yeah, almost a year yeah. ago. Yeah, I mean, it could be like the HomePod. Was, was it Home? No, it was AirPlay 2 that came in like under the wire. It was, what was it with like two days on whatever countdown they gave us you know, the, that, that it finally shipped? And I, I would assume we're going to see it in September. It seems logical to me that we would, but golly, this is why Apple never pre-announces anything is because when they do, it bites them right in the butt. So my vote is we'll see it certainly by the holidays, probably in September, even if they don't ship until near the holidays. But it's anyone's guess at this point. Yeah, totally. I've been also thinking that maybe one of the reasons that they pre-announced it, because they've done it the same thing with like the watch and the iPhone and things like that when a new product first comes out, because they need to seek all of these like government approvals. And maybe that was one of the reasons, like, they knew that it was going to leak through all these, like, you know, schematics and things they have to submit for these approval processes. And they just were like, well, let's just pre-announce it. And maybe they thought it would be, you know, delivered quicker than they actually could because of all these complications or something like that. 
it would have been leaked by iOS uh, if it wasn't for <laughs> <laughs> the uh, government stuff. But yeah, uh, I, I think uh, they hit some oops and probably... Uh, we heard that uh, there was some issue with uh, heat, that it was heating up too much. Uh, we don't know if that's the case, but hey, I really hope they come out in September. And uh, from what we've been uh, seeing, and we, we're going to talk about that uh, more, uh, this uh, trip I'm going to take to the US in October is going to be a very expensive one. <laughs> <laughs> Buy all the things. Yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting. And also, like, now also with the AirPods uh, wireless charging case and all these things, like, these are not just normal Qi charging, right? Like, this is some special magic sauce that they are sprinkling on top of it and that you can charge three things at the same time. So it feels like also there's a lot of moving parts here. And presumably there's a new iPhone. Maybe that has some kind of features that also complicates things. You know, who knows? There's the beautiful animation. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's the blocker, right? They couldn't get the animation right. Johnny Ive is not happy with the animation yet. Um, well, it was actually done in iOS 11 and they removed it. So, yeah, there's that. Yeah. All right. So another piece of detail that has come out is the fact that it seems that the new iPhone, or at least the new version of iOS 12, uh, supports dual SIM cards in some capacity. So, Ramble, what have you found there? Well, um, there have been rumors about this uh, since forever, I guess, because Apple never released an iPhone with dual SIM support. And I know that this can sound weird uh, for people in some countries, but there are places where dual SIM is pretty much a necessity uh, or maybe just really popular, like they are here in Brazil. Uh, like everybody who uses an Android device has a dual SIM one. So why is that? Well, there are many reasons. Um, one of them is that, I guess, the cellular providers, they, they have different like promotional cost things that you can use depending on who you're calling or texting. And people still use their phones a lot. So they have like two different carriers so they can take advantage of the the promotional uh, stuff <laughs> so th there's that uh, also people who use uh, a number for work and another one for personal stuff they oh, yeah that's a good use case yeah and and that's for like that would be cool for all uh, people from all over the world but yeah i, I think those are the the top reasons um maybe drug dealers <laughs> I'm sure that's the target market for this. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, all of that encryption and stuff. Um, so yeah, um, it's very popular in, uh, especially in, in third world countries like Brazil. Um, I think India as well. China has that. We've had um, like phones with four SIMs here, and that's crazy. But yeah, wow. <laughs> people use them. So um, I found a little piece of uh, code on iOS 12 beta 5, uh, actually two pieces. One of them mentions a second SIM status and a second SIM tray status, which is interesting. And there's also a handover manager, which has a is dual SIM device flag. Um, mm. So I think that's... Um, uh, pretty good uh, confirmation that at least at the software level they are ready to support dual sim and not just 
eSIM, but actual two physical SIMs. Right, yeah, because that's a big question, right? Whether this is just like a uh, integrated SIM card, embedded SIM card, or whether it's an actual physical one. Yeah, the thing is that those uh, the dual SIM thing is more popular in some places, like I mentioned, and some carriers, they I, I don't know if it's technical or if it's a political thing, but they don't want to support eSIM, uh, and especially those from the countries where dual SIM is more popular, so it wouldn't make sense to release a feature that's geared towards those countries uh, with just eSIM support. So, uh, And this also explains why the quote-unquote low-cost iPhone would be the 6.1-inch phone instead of a smaller one like a SE-sized phone. Oh, right. So what do you make of this, Casey? Would you ever use a dual-SIM iPhone? Or does this appeal to you at all? Or uh, you're a single-SIM kind of guy? <laughs> I feel like, I feel like this, this, this is a deeper question than I'm prepared for. No, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't personally see a great need at first. But then I can start rationalizing why this might make sense. So uh, here in America, it used to be early on, and it's less true now, that if you recall years and years ago, the iPhone was only available officially on AT&T. And at that time, I'm looking at like the late aughts, you know, 2008, 2009. At that time, AT&T's coverage was real bad. And for all of the good and bad of America, one thing I think we can all agree on is that America is pretty big. And so because of that, you know, getting really good cell phone coverage can be difficult. And what tends to happen is, you know, interstate highways, you know, big, big, big roads that people travel on, they'll have really good coverage and metropolitan areas will have good coverage. But especially in the late aughts, if you if you stepped very far off a highway, you could be in no man's land real quick in terms of coverage. And one of the reasons that people were clamoring to have the iPhone on Verizon, and I don't know how much of this made it overseas, so you guys may not even be familiar with this, but in the late 2000s, you know, early 2010s, I forget when the Verizon iPhone 4 came out, whatever year that was. But around that time, the reason people were so excited for the iPhone on Verizon was because Verizon had considerably better coverage. And I bring all this up to say, if I was in a situation where, let's say it was like the late 2000s, you know, 2008, 2009, and I'm still on AT&T because I prefer that for whatever reason, maybe my family is on it, maybe it, it has better coverage here where I live in Virginia. But, you know, if I were traveling, I would want to perhaps be able to switch to Verizon to have service in certain circumstances. I can see why this would make sense. All that being said, though, the big carriers, you know, AT&T, Verizon, even to some degree, you know, the T-Mobiles and Sprints of the world, or I shouldn't say of the world, of, AT of, uh, of America, you know, <laughs> everyone has pretty good coverage at this point. So it's not as big a deal as it used to be. That being said, though, I could see this being nice, you know, just on occasion. I don't think I would seek it, but I could see it being nice on occasion when traveling. Additionally, I, I like what, I forget which one of you said it, but but the idea of having a work telephone number that is completely separated from my personal number. I yeah. tended to not give away my personal cell phone number if, if I could at all avoid it for work-related things because I just don't want to be that available, you know, especially outside of business hours. That's my time. And I don't right. want people calling me in my time, you know? So... Yeah. 
I could totally see where this would be convenient, especially if there was some robust like do not disturb settings, do not disturb settings per sim, which wouldn't be very Apple like, to be honest, but would be really cool. You could say, you know, starting at 5 p.m., do not disturb the work phone on the work phone number. So calls from the work phone number. I don't want to know. But my personal phone. Yeah, you can ring that up until I go to bed. You, you know what I mean? And yeah. so yeah. I could see that being real useful, too. But. As your average American consumer, I, I don't think this will be terribly popular, but one of the one of the things that Americans tend to forget is that there are other countries in the world. And so <laughs> I, uh, I can see how this could be real big for places like Brazil, for example. Yeah, I totally yeah. forgot about the coverage aspect because we have the same problem here. It's a big country and some of the carriers are not very good at coverage. Uh, they've been better now, but there are some issues still. Yeah, we actually have the same problem in Sweden too. Not because Sweden is a big country, <laughs> but because there's not that many people living in it, and a lot of uh, a lot of the country is very empty. Like especially in the northern parts, where you basically just have to have like the government-owned carrier in order to be able to have any coverage at all. So, and of course, that's more expensive and uh, you know not as good when it comes to additional services and things. So, I can definitely see people. Uh, who travel to those areas, who who like to visit it or something like that, maybe, you know, have dual sims. But it is, like, it feels like one of these things that is, like, un-Apple-like in terms of that it's not a very elegant solution, right? Like, the most elegant solution would probably be just, yeah, you could, you know, switch in software or you could just pick, like, on the iPad when it's like, a, hey, which carrier do you want to use and things like that. Like, having two actual slots, that doesn't feel, like, very... Uh, Apple-ish to me in terms of like the elegance of it. Yeah, I believe uh, this is a solution for some markets like India and, and China, maybe even Brazil, but this device may not even be available in the US uh, or right. Australia or the UK or something. I, I think it, it could be a separate model uh, and it wouldn't be like a full uh, new model. It would just be the, the, the quote-unquote low-cost iPhone, but with the, the cutout for the, the second SIM uh, tray. And in the US and other countries, they could go for a software-based solution and eSIM and that stuff. Yeah. Well, plus, is there any clear indication that it definitely isn't an eSIM? Like, you said that you had seen some mention of a second SIM tray. And certainly tray implies that it's something removable. But... There's nothing about that that guarantees that it's removable, right? So it could be that even though it says second SIM tray, the reality of the hardware is that there's an eSIM, you know, soldered onto the the whatever the appropriate board is within the device. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. there there isn't anything that that explicitly guarantees that it's a, that it's two physical removable SIMs, right? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. It, it could definitely still be an eSIM, even uh, even though they call it a SIM tray, it could be exactly. a, a virtual SIM tray. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's as silly as that sounds, and I, I will be the first to tell you that does sound silly. I, I, I would at least keep our minds open that even though it does say tray, that doesn't mean that it definitely, definitely, definitely is something that's physically removable in the real world. There's also another scenario, which is uh, this was from uh, a the diagnostics component of the OS. So you could imagine someone coming up to the engineer and saying, "Oh, we need to prepare this because we're going to ship uh, an iPhone with dual SIM." So the person who's writing the diagnostics code doesn't even know that uh, it's uh, an eSIM, mm -hmm. so they just call it a SIM tray. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, that's also a good point. 
All right. Well, uh, exciting times, and we'll see if we're going to be uh, rocking dual SIMs in our iPhones anytime soon. Next up, we want to talk a little bit about the iPad because it's a little bit of a deja vu that's happening right now, Rambo. <laughs> you have again found a glyph um, that details a little bit about the new iPad's potential design. This was very interesting uh, because we were writing the show notes as these uh, things were happening. And I put this item in there and I mentioned Deja Vu because last year, if you don't remember, I found the iPhone X glyph in the HomePod firmware. And I wrote this when I found uh, an icon from the battery usage UI uh, part of the OS, which is just a little PNG, a small icon that shows an iPad with uh, no home button, uh, smaller bezels, and no notch as well. Um, But then, (laughs) a few days later, I found in the same exact place where there there was the, the iPhone X glyph, the new glyphs for the bigger iPhone X looking phone and the glyph for the new iPad with no home button, uh, which for those following following along at home, it's uh, Basket UI Foundation. Uh, that's the, the framework where those can be found. Maybe we should have like a separate show where it's like a spell along along, you know, <laughs> almost like a karaoke, but you're spelling, spelunking along with the show. <laughs> Watch out, Twitch. It's, we're coming for you. That's exactly. All right. So I have, I have a question that, that hearing you describe this, it, it made me think. So clearly looking at, at what you posted on 9to5, these glyphs certainly look like an iPad that's that's with far smaller bezels, no home button, just like you said. And it doesn't obviously indicate that there's a notch. Now, of course, without seeing hardware, who knows? But let's go for a second and assume that there is no clearly visible notch on the new iPads. Are we grumpy about that? Like, you know, I, I, in a perfect world, I would prefer not to have a notch on my phone. Although I will say that I don't typically notice or mind it. It it, it does fade away much, much, much quicker and more easily than I expected before I got my iPhone 10. But will you guys be grumpy if the iPad does not have a notch and the iPhone does? Like, let's start with you, John. What do you think? So it's funny about the notch because, you know, we, we were talking a lot about it back when the original kind of glyphs were, were found and when, you know, we, we realized that there was going to be some kind of notch in the new iPhone. Uh, but then it went to this period of time where people just kind of forgot about it. And then all the Android phones came out with, with notches, <laughs> even though they don't really have to have one. And those notches are ugly. Yeah, exactly. They're not the real notch, right? <laughs> Uh, so it's very interesting how it's kind of become part of the iPhone X brand or part of the iPhone X kind of look and feel. So for me, at least, it's kind of gone from this kind of thing that we first were questioning whether or not it would be good or even, you know, why is it there? It feels like not very elegant uh, to kind of just becoming a part of the phone or like a part of the image of the phone. So kind of shifting from a you know, sort of negative thing or questionable thing to something that is like, well, this is this is part of the phone, this is part of the how it looks. So personally, like if the new iPad comes out and it doesn't have a notch, I I wouldn't be like, why 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 doesn't the iPhone also not have a notch? Uh, it would be more like, well, this is the iPad and this is how it looks. And of course, I mean, there's all these practical reasons why they might be able to not have a notch on the iPad as well. But just from kind of an aesthetic perspective, uh, I personally wouldn't be that grumpy about it. What about you, Rambo? 
Well, um, uh, the notch on the iPhone X never really bothered me, uh, as uh, Casey mentioned. Um, I'm not sure how I'm going to feel when I have this huge device uh, with no notch uh, and I switch between that and my iPhone. I'll have to actually have the device to, to know it, but I will say that inconsistency between iPhone and iPad has been bothering me Uh even more before iOS 12, I run the beta on my iPad as well. Uh, I was constantly dragging from the, the top right corner to bring up Control Center on iPad, and it didn't work, and it drives me nuts. Um, so I like that they unified the, the gestures between those. Uh, so yeah, it's hard to me for me to answer. Um, I, I guess uh, I'll have to to see and we'll follow up when I actually have the device. But I expect that it it will bother me at least a, a little bit. It could be one of those things like uh, True Tone and some of these kind of more subtle features that once you get used to it, it's very hard to go back. Yeah. So, yeah, it might be that I turn out to be grumpier than I think I will be. <laughs> There's also another aspect that this uh, iPad will probably not have an OLED screen. Uh, and that's a biggie. Right. Yeah, that will, that will yeah, be different. That's interesting. So what about you, Casey? How grumpy will you be? Yeah, I think I'll be annoyed. I don't know if I would be grumpy, but I'll be annoyed. However, it occurred to me as I was listening to you guys, how funny would it be if Apple, and I feel like this would not be the first time, you know, if Apple moves to this notch on the iPhone and then this year just comes out of left field and the notch goes away. Like, don't don't right. worry for a moment about the the how that actually gets implemented let's let's just think for a second what would it be like if the notch goes away so here it is in 2017 you know everyone has well apple has a notch and then fast forward to 2018 now all of android has notches and then at the end of 2018 <laughs> apple says oh just kidding the notch is so passe right now what are you guys doing with those <laughs> stupid notches it would just be the most <laughs> apple thing in the world to do now for the record oh, yeah. i don't expect that i think the uh, whatever they're calling the next iphone the next top of the line iphone i suspect it will have a notch and I think it'll look, you know, very much like the iPhone 10 of today. But yeah. to that end, you haven't seen anything to indicate any different shape or or anything like that for the iPhone, right? Or I mean, obviously you you've seen, or I believe you said in the past you've seen some different some thoughts about different sizes. But in terms of like the aesthetic of it, be it bigger, smaller, the same size, there's no indication that it would be anything different than what we see as an iPhone 10, right? Nope. Yeah, the this year's phones. Uh all evidence we have uh, points to towards all of them having notches, even the quote-unquote mm -hmm. low-cost one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we are in the talk year, right? We are in the S year. So it would make sense also for them to keep the same physical design for the iPhone. It might also be because, you know, the iPad, you kind of need to hold it. So it might also be that the iPad has a slightly thicker bezel. I mean, it already does have a thicker bezel than the iPhone, but that might also be something where it's like makes it less of an annoyance because you already have this kind of, you know, bezel around the device. Yeah, that's a good point, too. It's pronounced bezel. <laughs> <laughs> deep cut, deep cut. Basil. All right. So uh, we've also found or we, you, Rambo, have also found <laughs> uh, some other glyphs uh, again in the PassKit UI Foundation. So in this uh, case, it relates to something like Apple Pay as or something like that. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so uh, PassKit uh, is the... There are several PassKit class of uh, frameworks and they all have to do with wallet. 
they can be used for Apple Pay on like Safari. They implement the Apple Pay uh, payment authorization view controller, which is the, the API that we as developers can use and that uh, I guess Safari is using as well. All right, so let me so let me jump in there. So so I actually wrote in the show notes like what is this about? So I'm glad you you opened up this can of worms. So to play back what you just said, I am writing an i an iPad app and I want to support Apple Pay on the iPad, which presumably will then ask my phone or my watch or whatever to confirm the payment, right? And so that's what you're talking about with Paskit with Paskit in in the iPad is that sort of a thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it okay. shows the the little circle at the bottom with the device and the little mm-hmm. arrow pointing mm-hmm. to, to yeah that so that's what the the glyph gotcha. is used for and there there's something interesting about the glyph which uh, I totally didn't get when I first saw it which is that the the glyph shows uh, a square iPad ooh interesting <laughs> finally it's the comeback of the cube <laughs> <laughs> Um, so someone uh, on Twitter, I'm sorry, I, I don't remember who it was, uh, quickly pointed out that it's probably because there are two sizes of iPads and Apple always tries to represent the devices uh, as best as they can with uh, glyphs and stuff. So they're probably going to be resizing uh, its square, but it's going to be resized using that nine slice resizing process to actually represent the, the correct size of device that you're using. So the actual aspect ratio of the the glyph doesn't really matter because it's going to be resized by the software. Oh, yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, for those of you who are not iOS developers, that is a very common technique that we slice up an image in nine pieces, which means that you can stretch the middle pieces, like the top, left, bottom, and right piece in order to just tile that uh, to basically make an image that can stretch without sacrificing quality. So yeah, that would make total sense in this case as well, because that could actually be a way for them to hide future devices from you, Rambo, <laughs> because they would just have one glyph, they would just resize it to fit like the device that they're interested in. Yeah, it's really funny that this keeps happening, uh, and it happened on the same circumstances, because... Well, a little different because the HomePod firmware was the, a firmware for an unreleased device, which shouldn't have been posted in the public feed. But this time, uh, this is not present on iOS. This is on macOS Mojave, and I found it there. So they clearly remembered to wipe those glyphs from the iOS build, but oops, they left it. <laughs> they left the, the glyphs in macOS. <laughs> It must be such a complicated process internally within Apple, like to strip all these things out. Because, you know, even me, like working on projects with like 100 developers is small comparison to like the huge behemoth and the huge machinery that is Apple, right? Apple as a whole. And, you know, imagine all the work they have to do to like hide these things because they have to work on them, right? But at the same time, they have to ship betas, they have to put things in the public, and they know that people like you will will go in and look for stuff. So it must be such a huge effort to try to hide all of these things. Well, uh, the only way for them to really prevent this from happening would be to have someone do what I do <laughs> and like tell them, hey, I found this. Can you remove this? And I found that and this and the other thing. And I think that would be the only way. And I'm not like um, offering myself. I'm not for higher <laughs> Apple. Um, but yeah, it's really, really tricky because they need... Uh, the thing is they announced the new iOS version 
at WWDC and start shipping betas immediately. And the new iOS version is always being worked to support new devices that are going to ship in the fall. And that's tricky because they, they need to hide the, the supporting code and assets for new devices during those betas. And they need to, to only ship that in the GM, which is what usually happens. Um, so yeah, but then the GM can leak, like happened last year, with lots of, of marketing images even of new devices. So it's a really complicated process. And someone was uh, asking me about this, and I mentioned that I'm surprised how little actually leaks, given the the task that they have. Yeah. Yeah, they must have some like really rigid processes in place, like lots of compiler flags, lots of, uh, you know, hashtag if statements and if def. conditional compilation, yeah, if def and things like that. Because, yeah, it must be a very interesting code base to work on, like these OS level things, because there must be so much like conditional compilation and things that they try to strip out. Sometimes they use uh, nonsensical names. Uh, I remember uh, something uh, in uh, AppKit that was uh, a flag in NS cell, which is uh, one of the classes in AppKit. And uh, it was something like uh, if it was registered with the, the touch bar server or something, and uh, the flag was called uh, was noticed by Senpai. <laughs> <laughs> Casey, you want to add something to this or... No, other than to to reiterate what you were saying a minute ago that, you know, the biggest iOS team I've worked on was all of five iOS developers, which is nothing. And I cannot fathom how challenging it would be not only to work in a team of even 100, let alone, you know, presumably thousands, but how challenging it must be to deal with conditional compilation everywhere. Like if you're for some reason not a developer and yet still listening to this show or, or, any, or my, my show. You um, deserve a medal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But suffice to say, imagine like, and I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but imagine that you're trying to do something, whatever that may be. You know, and or it's like imagine trying to make a sandwich, but you're making it for someone who has a bunch of extremely esoteric allergies. So you go to grab some bread, but then they say, no, 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 no. I have a weed allergy. So then you get some, you know, gluten free or wheat free bread and then you start to put peanut butter on it. No, 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 no. I have a peanut allergy. And it's kind of like that, right, where every step you take, you have to say, well, is wheat okay? Well, are peanuts okay? And it's very, very frustrating because it gets in the way of you just doing what you're trying to do, like make a sandwich or whatever the case may be. And yeah. now that I've beaten this analogy to death, I hope the point you, that, that you're seeing the point, <laughs> which is just that it makes everything very, very hard as a developer. And it is very easy for something to slip through the cracks. You know, oh, oh, holy cow, I didn't even think to ask you if jelly was acceptable. I just assumed it was. You know, I didn't even think to look to see that HLS iPad 2 had slipped by. I just, I forgot, you know. And it's a, it's a very easy, it's very easy to get overwhelmed and make these sorts of mistakes. So I, I, I am kind of glad that these mistakes happen because it gives us stuff to talk about. But on the other side of the coin, like I, I don't envy Apple for having to deal with all this because it is really tough. Yeah, because the big challenge is that, you know, for all your testing and everything that you're doing, you want the build that you're working on to actually be as close as possible to the end product. But if you have to strip all these things out, it becomes really challenging because, yeah, you are inherently kind of moving away from your final product and you're not having the mm -hmm. same code base really anymore. So, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated big thing. 
Yeah, and they need to work with like compiler flags and not include stuff in builds, and that's really tricky. Yeah. Thankfully, they also control the compiler, right? <laughs> they have some. They have some experience there. All right. So speaking about leaks, let's talk about the HomePod. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So uh, HomePod is uh, it's a very interesting product. It seems to be going like better for it uh, than some people might have thought. At the same time, it's kind of a niche product. It doesn't have like a big international release yet. And it's kind of limited in some ways. So it didn't get its own section during the WWC keynote, which you know may make sense in a little, in a little bit because uh, it's not like a very developer-focused product. But um, there has been some new information uh, found about the HomePod as well. So uh, why don't you give us a little bit of a summary, Rambo? Cool. Uh, first of all, I need to mention that I have HomePod. I actually have two of them uh, in a stereo pair. And I use HomePod more than I thought I would uh, because I'm, I, I've never been a huge uh, listening to music out loud person. I usually just uh, go for headphones. But I'm enjoying HomePod. The stereo is amazing. And you can actually hear stuff that you usually can't when you're using uh, headphones or something. So if you enjoy music and uh, you are an Apple Music subscriber, definitely go uh, for HomePod because it's cool. Um, so, yeah. So uh, we have seen some rumors and reports about uh, HomePod supporting phone calls and multiple timers in an internal beta that Apple runs for their employees, which is called the HomePod Living On Beta. Uh, <laughs> they have nice. been called the livability betas as well before, and I think they're still called that. Uh, so yeah, um, and I've been able to confirm that Again, uh, I had confirmed the calendar support before using the same method, which is to run the HomePod setup UI in the simulator, uh, which is something you can do, actually. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll do this for a demo on my, my talk, the talk we've been talking about, John. Yeah, yeah that sounds be, like a good idea. Yeah, that would be a cool one. So um, the personal requests uh, UI, so that UI that shows up when you are setting up your HomePod for the first time and it asks you about personal requests, it showed before the icon for messages, reminders, and calendar. And on iOS 12 Beta 5, it started to show the icon for phone as well. And they changed the text to say allow anyone to use this HomePod to send and read messages, add reminders, create notes, make phone calls, and more. So yeah, phone calls. Intriguing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would make sense, right? Because uh, you can initiate phone calls using Siri, and you can do it uh, in the car as well with CarPlay and things like that. So it would make sense for the uh, HomePod flavor of Siri to support that as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you can currently... Uh, use your iPhone to, to make a phone call and then choose HomePod as an output. So just like a, a speakerphone. And it works very well. I've been able to test it with friends and they mentioned that the my voice sounded just as good as when I was using the, the actual iPhone. So um, that's cool. And uh, another thing that uh, they mentioned is that it's going to support multiple timers. And 
Spelunking, Hooray. yeah, and spelunking the the mobile timer framework on iOS 12, uh, I noticed that it has some pretty significant uh, refactoring when compared to the iOS 11 version. Yeah, it's been very interesting about this multiple timers thing because at the surface level is kind of how hard can it be, right? <laughs> it's just like, you know, a new timer, like a new instance of the timer class or something like that. Just, okay, you're done, right? Change it to an array. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it seems to be some really big complications. And uh, we've uh, we've heard a little bit that it might have been more complicated than what it first seems like. Yeah, we have some little birdie that uh, gave us some insider information. Um, so uh, this person who used to work at Apple mentioned that uh, this uh, multiple timers project was actively being developed when the person left Apple. And it should have shipped with iOS 11 and uh, with HomePod because HomePod shipped with iOS 11 as well. And it was a huge project uh, because uh, timers on iOS had a decade of tech depth and they had bespoke sync engines and many processes accessing the raw timer database like animals. <laughs> so what do you think of that, Casey? I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those instances where you realize that Apple is like everyone else, if that makes <laughs> right. sense. Like, yeah. like, to me, my, my mental model of Apple is that they're all these like superstar developers that never make mistakes and always do everything perfectly. And in the rare cases that something slips through the developers cracks, they have the, this phenomenal QA team that will ensure that no bug ever ships and that all architectural decisions are perfect, etc. And, as it turns out, Apple is just like any other software company. <laughs> They're better <laughs> at hiding their, their major flaws than I think most software companies are, but they still have these major flaws. And I don't want to speak for the two of you guys, but I can bet that I can speak for the two of you guys in saying everyone has had that thing that they know is just ugly or bad or smelly or gross, and you just keep kicking that can down the road because today is not the day you have the time to fix it. And it seems like, as ridiculous as it may sound on the surface, that multiple timers is one of those things that they just kept kicking down the road and now they have to pay for it and just like every can that gets kicked down the road when it comes to development it ends up kind of snowballing and turning into an avalanche and so you know i haven't spoken to any birdies about this but it, given you know what you're saying Guy, it sounds like it just got uglier and uglier over time and now they're really having to unwind a bunch of stuff in order to fix it which isn't surprising as as a developer but as an apple user it is quite surprising yeah i mean it's this classic thing where you have a piece of code that seems incredibly predictable right where it's a timer like it's it's just counting time, how it, it can't get more predictable than that, right? <laughs> so yeah. you are making all these assumptions across the code base, like this will always work this way. Like there will always just be one timer, so I'm going to hard code, I'm going to save a reference to it, or I'm going to access the database directly, like this report states, and things like that. And like you say, Casey, we've, we've all been kicking that can, or in this case, kicking the clock down the road. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that always happens in big projects. And, uh, you know, you can really relate where 
now that you're making this kind of product decision and you're saying, well, now we actually want to support multiple timers, you have to like just work through all that technical debt. But at the same time, like everyone has their own deadlines and the calendar team, they might be super busy, you know, shipping a new feature and they can't make that huge refactor right now. So it keeps getting postponed and postponed. So yeah, I can definitely see that happening. Even on the surface level or on the user level, it looks very, very trivial. But as we know, Time and dates and time zones is always complicated. Oh, oh yeah. Is it ever? As our friend Dave DeLong would definitely agree. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, I, it was weird to me when I, I first read this, uh, thinking that, uh, what do they mean, like uh, multiple processes accessing the, the timer database? But when you think about it, the, the timer stuff is uh, integrated into the OS and uh, when you have a, an active timer, it shows up on your iPhone lock screen, and that's a Springboard plugin. And I think I've seen Springboard itself access the timer database uh, in some of my spelunking session. Uh, and there's also, I think, uh, a notification. So maybe Bulletin Board also accesses the timer database. So probably there was no like uh, canonical API for for system components and other apps to access timers and they just oh let's just read this sqlite file from the disk or something and <laughs> then this became a huge problem because you, now you can't just refactor the timer itself, you have to refactor all of these different processes that access the timer. And from what I've seen, what they've done now, which is the, the right thing to do, is they moved the handling of timers to a system daemon, which can then be queried by other processes and it will handle all of the details about accessing the database and doing the syncing and stuff. So they're doing the right thing. Yeah, because especially here you have cross-process communication, you have like system level integration. And this was, you know, way before we had things like extensions and like a nice abstraction for these kind of things. So you can just imagine like how scary it can be for us as developers to just like refactor a piece of old code that is, you know, used all over the app. Imagine like refactoring something that's used across the whole system in like these like very, very weird, unpredictable ways. And especially something like a timer, which you know, if it breaks, people are going to be very, very upset about that because they're going to burn their cinnamon buns in the <laughs> oven, right? <laughs> well, it could potentially start a fire. Yeah, well, exactly. Lives are at stake here. So we have to be really, really careful. Yeah, I mean, you guys, uh, you're, you're joking, but you're, you're serious too. I mean, that really it could be the case. And I was thinking, yeah. you know, as you're talking that if you look at the code that, that at least I'll take, I won't pick on you two, I'll pick on myself. If you look at the code I wrote, you know, it was not for the kind of app that that was you know utterly critical for people's lives obviously it helped people's lives but it was not like a timer where it can be critical and furthermore we didn't have the install base that apple does so something like a timer i would imagine almost everyone who uses a ios device probably will set a timer at some point so imagine basically the entirety of the iOS install base that is touching this code, you know, and and, it, and not only are they touching this code, but they could be doing it for something important. Now, I take my cinnamon buns as being pretty important, but it could be actually, <laughs> it could be actually important, like an injection or something like that. So yeah, I yeah. couldn't agree more. Like, it's scary for me to refactor some like, 
stupid alert view that I did off in the corner of the code that nobody else ever sees. But imagine having to refactor something that is critical to literally a billion plus devices. It's it, it operating on that level is a kind of stress that I am glad I do not need to worry about. Yeah, you yeah. mentioned like uh, injection and uh, I hadn't even thought of that there might be i don't know nurses or doctors using the timer on ios to i don't know be reminded when they need to to change the iv on a patient or something so yeah it's it's more important than we think it is and i'm sure there's something in the terms of service uh, of ios that says you shouldn't use it for that but people will anyway Uh, i remember i think itunes uh terms of service mentioned nuclear plants or something you couldn't use itunes for <laughs> yeah don't use itunes as control software for your nuclear power plants <laughs> yeah so yeah i think uh, it, it makes sense that it, uh, it sounds simple but it's tricky and it's one of those cases where software is very interesting because if there was a, a startup uh, let's say there was a new startup that wanted to launch a phone they could launch a phone with multiple timers and syncing a lot easier than Apple can make their existing phone support timers, uh, multiple timers, because Apple has this issue that we mentioned of so many uh, active users, and they have a decade, at least a decade of uh, old software to deal with. Yeah, exactly. It's a classic technical depth kind of problem and things that you paint yourself into a corner occasionally. So why is there no HomePod beta for us? That's a very good question. (laughs) (laughs) Because they don't want you to find additional device. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a good reason. What would the install process be like for a user, though? That, That to me would be ugly, even for a developer. Like Apple, Apple will not poop on their developers, but Apple will be more mean to developers and make developers jump through more hoops than your average user. But it's not typically Apple style to make, you know, developers bend over backwards. Of course, of course, everyone who's listening to this is thinking of the seven ways that that happens. But in my eyes, anyway, you know, Apple doesn't make us, you know, bend over backwards while on fire in order to like, (laughs) to get our jobs done, usually. And so I I don't know, what would the install mechanism be like for a beta, you know, with the certificate and everything else? I'm sure it can be done. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it seems like it's extremely fiddly for something that they may or may not get a lot of useful data out of. I don't know. Well, it is possible for you to install a profile on HomePod already, so that's not an issue. Oh, I there think, you go then. Yeah, I think the main reason uh, for for this is because there's really no way to restart a HomePod if something goes wrong. And I know that's Ooh, true yeah, for watchOS as well, but mm. if you have a bricked Apple Watch, you can take it to an Apple Store and they can fix it for you. So maybe they don't have that process for HomePod because how would they do it? There's no part on HomePod at all other than the the power plug, uh, which is removable, but not removable, really. Um, (laughs) I removed uh, the power plug from both of mine to install. Of course you did. Yeah. Um, So yeah, uh, I think uh, the main reason is because if something goes wrong, there's no way to, to go back. And I think... They don't do public beta for watchOS for the same reason, because uh, as Casey mentioned, uh, 
we can bend over backwards <laughs> uh, as developers, but uh, let's say there was a public beta of WatchOS which bricked 10% of devices that tried to install it. That would be a huge line at the, the Apple Store. Yeah, absolutely. All right, another really interesting uh, piece of information is uh, how the prediction features on iOS seems to be working and how they're kind of connected to the server. So, uh, Rambo, you found that it turns out that Apple is actually using Lua code, which is a uh, interpreted language that is very commonly used in game development in order to uh, create scripts and dynamic features and things that you can easily uh, change uh, during the game developments. But in this case, Apple is actually downloading Lua code from the servers in order to power some of the prediction features in iOS 12. So, Rambo... Why are they doing this and kind of how does that work? First of all, Lua has a special place in my heart because it's Brazilian. I don't know if oh, you I didn't know that. Of it. Nice, yeah. I didn't know that either. Yeah, it was developed uh, in, uh, in uh, some university in Brazil. And actually Lua is moon in Portuguese. So that's some culture for it you. It all makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, they uh, Apple has this system called uh, the Main Entry Software Update System or MESU, MISU, I don't know, they, they abbreviate it. Um, so uh, they download several uh, components of the system from this server, uh, including uh, full-on uh, software updates. But I don't think people are aware of this, but iOS updates itself frequently without you even knowing of it because they have several types of assets that get downloaded from this server separate from OS updates. And this is apparently one of those uh, assets that they can download. And it happens to include a, a little file called heuristics.lua, which is a big Lua script with like 2,000 lines of code with several different methods for doing different types of heuristics to uh, offer suggestions to the user based on some things like the existence of calendar events and whether there's a phone number in the calendar event. And I think it's clever for them to have this in a way that it can be updated remotely because if there's a weird bug in it or if... Uh, they want to add new suggestions, they can just uh, update it on the server and everyone can get it without the need for an OS update. So I think this is a really interesting uh, implementation and um, I think uh, it, it's worth explaining uh, if uh, one of you guys can, uh, what are heuristics? I think I'm going to leave this to the chief summarizer-in-chief. Uh <laughs> 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 I don't know what a good summary of this is. Uh, I guess it's the sort. I guess it's it's looking at you know. Well, let me take a stab at it, and we'll just edit it out if it if it stinks. Uh, it's it's looking at you know what what sorts of things are happening or have happened and making decisions based off of that. That's the best summary I can come up with. Does that make any sense? Is that fair? Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I I think of it as like a, a, a set of loosely defined rules. So uh, it's not just an if this, then that kind of thing. It's more nuanced. Uh, so it, it uses several different inputs to, to produce an, an output. And uh, it can vary based on loosely defined rules, which uh, can uh, change dynamically. So it's not just an, an if 
thing. Um, we can think of it as uh, fuzzy logic in, in a sense. Uh, and I'm sure uh, people will uh, say that we butchered the explanation. <laughs> <laughs> But to go back a half step, I find it fascinating that that this is using Lua. And it's not an unreasonable technical answer to this problem. But it's it's very interesting because I, I have this kind of two-headed monster view of the way Apple develops code. And and I don't have a lot of insider knowledge. In fact, I have almost no insider knowledge. But it seems like, you know, if you look at it on the surface, they clung to Objective-C for forever. And whether or not you're an Objective-C fan, I'm not here to poop on Objective-C, but it is certainly old. And it wasn't until the last few years that Swift became a thing. And, and from what we gather, they're not using it very much internally for shipping code. I think they are using it a lot for like unit tests and things like that. But You know, they're not really using Swift yet, and there's obvious reasons for that that are irrelevant for the purposes of this conversation. But, you know, they, they're still on web objects, as far as we know, which is this ancient, like, you know, Objective-C, but not sort of thing that they use mm -hmm. on the server side or used, if not used. And so it's funny because Apple seems to find a technology they like and just squeeze squeeze it to death and get every last drop out of that technology. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and then here it is, they're using Lua, which isn't brand new by any stretch of the imagination, but is, you know, a modern, you know, currently used technology that other people in the world use. It's not just Apple, you know, it's not like Objective-C where it's effectively just Apple. It's not like web objects where it's probably literally just Apple, you know, <laughs> this is, this is a, this is yeah. a reasonable solution to this technical problem. And I know that I'm not giving them enough credit. Like I, I'm sure a lot of the, the, the Siri stuff and, and a lot of the uh, core ML stuff, I'm sure that's using modern technologies under the hood, but Uh, so much of the stuff that I as a developer interact with seems to be all of the creaky old stuff. And this is an example of them really being, you know, forward thinking and, and, and coming up with a reasonable technical solution to this problem. So I, I applaud them for that. And it is very interesting for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why Lua is so commonly used for this type of task where it's very, very kind of lightweight, both to kind of download and it's not super mega verbose and you can evaluate it pretty quickly and, You can run it, I believe, using like a C runtime, so it runs pretty fast. So it, it kind of ticks a lot of boxes for things like this, which is, you know, there has been a couple of funny kind of, I don't want to call them scandals, but funny situations where the prediction system in iOS has not really done what it maybe should have done. And uh, then they could just kind of hot patch that without requiring a full-on software update. So having this dynamism is... I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a, this holy grail that a lot of companies are chasing. And you have like things like React Native and, and Facebook, you know, using JavaScript for dynamic evaluation and things like this. And you have other, other companies doing this as well. And like I mentioned, a lot of game developers love to use things like Lua for this use case as well. So, you know, having this kind of flexibility is a bit of a holy grail for developers in general, because it enables you to always do this kind of hot patch when you really need to. So, and especially for something like prediction, which, you know, might really require this sometimes, I can definitely see why they went this path. Yeah, and using Lua makes sense because it's easy to embed uh, because it's just a C runtime, like you mentioned. I, I think I even uh, did a little experiment before of embedding Lua in uh, a Mac app, and it's really easy to just download the, the lib Lua thing, and uh, it's easy to build. And it runs quickly, and I think they decided to go for it instead of using something that would be more obvious, like JavaScript, because of uh, the fact that it's lightweight. 
Uh, JavaScript requires a bigger footprint, uh, both in terms of memory and in terms of CPU usage. Uh, they could use JavaScript, JavaScript core, but they probably didn't want to uh, be using that because this is something that runs in a background daemon and it probably runs very frequently. Yeah, exactly. And it can also be one of those classic cases where the developer in charge of building the original version of this just happened to like Lua, right? Where that sometimes <laughs> happens. And then it's like, well, it works. Let's just ship it, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and again, to come back to what you, Casey, said earlier, you know, we all have this moment when we realize that Apple is not just made out of unicorns and magic and, and stars, <laughs> right? It's, it's like actually real people solving real problems. And this could just be one of those cases where it's like, it works. You know, we already have a Lua interpreter there. Let's just, you know, use Lua. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, Guy, when you tweeted this, this is what you downloaded from their servers. Like, you didn't change anything here, did you? It, it's it's all exactly what you downloaded. Yep. Yeah, so that's also interesting to me because, as we were discussing earlier, and how painful it it often is to work on platform kind of code where you have to if def this and you know com conditionally compile that. This looks like code like this looks like regular code to me it doesn't look like that crazy bananas code that apple has to deal with this just looks like regular code there's some comments at the top and it tells you what it's doing and outside of localization which you should care about but most of us don't always care about them <laughs> uh, other than the localization this looks like code it's readable it, it makes sense it's not jumping through any ridiculous hoops for the sake of jumping through hoops it's it's very straightforward which is which is cool to see yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Um, I, I I was reading the code and I actually could uh, understand what it was exactly. Doing. <laughs> um, and uh, blazing it, review. <laughs> it even has lots of uh, print statements, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that as well, which I thought was very funny. Including uh, there's a print for phone numbers and uh, display names and FaceTime phone numbers, which I I thought for a moment that seems like it's kind of personal information to be printing but presumably you know nobody can really get to that but generally speaking i try not to even print anything that i think is private you know once i'm shipping code i might do that during the course of development but i try to make sure i take all that out once it's shipped and it seems in this case eh, maybe not so much i guess the they can since they are controlling the lua runtime they can control where the the print statement goes to oh that's a really good point yeah they also they use uh, the os log api which i'm using as well and os log makes everything private by default if you're running a release build. So when you look at console, you're going to see uh, your phone number is private. And it just replaces everything that, that that's uh, concatenated with the string uh, to private. So mm. I guess it, it's fine there. And also yeah. uh, for people who might be worried about, oh, but what if someone man in the middle is my connection and stuff? Uh, this, um, the... Assets are downloaded with uh, HTTPS. There's SSL pinning, so you can't really man in the middle of it. And they are signed. They are downloaded as a bundle, and the bundle is signed. So if anything is modified inside the bundle, it uh, the OS will reject the asset and it won't be installed. So you're fine there, unless you're using a jailbroken device. All right, next up we want to talk about CarPlay, which I am really, really excited about because I've started using it uh, for the first time, really. Uh, but before we do, we just want to take a very quick break and thank our patrons. 
Uh, as you might know, this show is fully funded by Patreon and by your very generous contributions. So we want to thank everyone who has signed up to become a patron of this show, regardless of what amount you support us with. It really, really helps us just being able to dedicate more time to it, being able to produce more higher quality episodes and so on. And we especially want to thank our good friends of the show who are supporting us with more than $30, which is Ken Barlow, Igor Ferreira and Harsh Dabai. Sorry if I mispronounced some names there, but we really, really appreciate your support. And if you also want, we also have a after show, which is a monthly live stream uh, where we talk a little bit about tech from a different perspective. We show some demos and we answer your questions. So make sure to check that out if you want to support this show. If you want to join our after shows, you go to our Patreon page, which is at patreon.com slash stacktracepod. All right, so CarPlay, um, like I mentioned in the intro, I just took my first kind of long road trip using CarPlay uh, from Krakow in Poland to Sweden. And I drove about 2,500 kilometers uh, and I was using CarPlay pretty much the whole time. So uh, I have some initial impressions about it. I know you, Rambo, you haven't really used CarPlay a lot, have you? <laughs> I don't have a car, so nope. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Casey, I bet you have some opinions about CarPlay. So why don't you kick us off with like your, uh, just kind of uh, your overall kind of um, opinion about CarPlay, kind of how much you've used it and what you like about it and maybe a little bit what you dislike about it. Yeah. Uh, first of all, when you said you took a long road trip, so my impression of a European road trip is like three hours. This is not a three hour <laughs> trip, my friend. It Holy is not. Holy cow. I yeah. just, like, when you said 1500 kilometers, I was like, wait, that's a, that's a lot of miles. So what is it? What is it? And, and I'm looking at Google maps. You were in the car a long time. Did you know that? Like, this is, <laughs> this is a know, long trip. Siri just kept playing music. So I just kept driving. Yeah. I just didn't know what to do. No, but, uh, all kidding aside. Um, yeah. So my wife, uh, we bought, uh, my wife, a new car a year ago. She, she has a 2017 Volvo XC90. So it's the Volvo SUV and it comes with CarPlay. Well, it doesn't come with CarPlay, but you can option it in such a way that it comes with CarPlay. And so I've been using it on and off for the last year. And by and large, the thing I love about CarPlay is that it never gets old. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, my, my car is a 2011 uh, BMW 3 Series, and it has navigation in it. And that display clearly shows when it was born. You know, it looks like a display built in the early 2010s. It, it, the pixels are mammoth. The, there's no real animations as you like zoom in and out of the map, for example. Everything about it, you can just tell it's old. And in principle, yeah, the displays don't get better, you know, just magically over time, but the software will always get better magically over time. Because as you get new versions of iOS, you get new versions of CarPlay, you get new versions of the apps within CarPlay, you get, you know, the, the, they get better all the time. And, and you never have outdated maps. You know, my BMW, it's like $300 to get a new set of maps for that car. And that's yeah. why there's, it's still running on the maps from 2010. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so the, the, the idea and advantage of CarPlay, and, and all of this is applicable to Android Auto as well, is that it never really gets old. Even though the car doesn't get any newer and better and cooler, at least the software gets newer and better and cooler, even if the, if the hardware does not. And I really, really, really like that. And additionally, it's kind of, 
it's almost free in the sense of pairing. You do have to kind of approve, um, you know, I, I forget exactly which direction it is, but basically the, the head unit in the car and the phone need to agree with each other. But I found that to be easier to pair than say doing Bluetooth pairing, which always takes forever and is a pain in the butt. Oh, but yeah. the, the thing that is interesting about CarPlay is my rudimentary understanding of how it works. And perhaps one of you guys can correct me if you know better is that, Basically, it's just blitting, you know, it's just writing everything to the display in the car. And so the car is sending back touch events to the phone, and then the phone is sending the display back to the car. So the car is pretty much ignorant of everything that's going on on the display, which is really cool because it just means that the phone is effectively got a second display in your car's dashboard, which is wild. And I really, really like it, and I think it works really well. I've done trips where I have had entire text message conversations strictly via Siri. And it is slightly clunky because Siri oftentimes, you know, doesn't read things correctly and very oftentimes does not transcribe things correctly. But I can have an entire conversation in the car and the person on the other side may think I'm dictating by some mechanism. Like it's probably clear I'm not typing, but we're having a conversation and I'm not necessarily taking my eyes off the road. Siri or the car car play will not show text messages to be clear. It will only read them to you. You can pick up your phone and read the text message, but if you're using the car play display, it will never, ever, ever show you a text message. It will only say, you know, here's, here's where you have conversations that have unread messages, but it won't tell you what the, it won't show you what the messages are. It'll only read them. And so at, at first I really like CarPlay a lot where it falls down a little bit is a few different things. Number one, not every app supports it. And there's not a lot Apple can do about that on the surface, except it wasn't until recently that uh, Apple has stated they will allow third-party competitive apps to be in CarPlay. So what that means is up until, well, the forthcoming release of iOS and then the the release of these apps, you couldn't use Waze in your CarPlay display. You could only use Apple Maps. Now, the Apple Maps implementation is really good, but sometimes you don't want to use Apple Maps, especially if you don't live in the Bay Area of California. And so <laughs> yeah. yep. it is very, very frustrating when Apple Maps is your only option. And Apple stated at WWDC that they will bless um, Waze and Google Maps, and it, it is up to them to do it, but, they, but Apple will not stand in the way of them being in CarPlay, which is fantastic. And I think the mechanism for that is they just have to have a special cert that they include in their iOS app. Is that right? Yeah, you have to have a special entitlement and you can't just develop a CarPlay enabled app. You have, uh, regardless of what type sure, of app sure, it is, sure. you have to go through a uh, sign up process with Apple. So it's kind of a special exception kind of thing. I, a friend of mine wanted to make a CarPlay app and he had to jump through some hoops. It, it's not as difficult as something like MFI, but it, it's tricky. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it makes sense because probably there's also a lot of regulation here, like what you can and can't display in a car. And I know also Apple, like like you mentioned, Casey, the reason they don't actually show you the text messages is because they want you to be focused on the road and they want you to have as little interactions with the screen as possible, which is you know very interesting when you look at the UI of CarPlay and how it's kind of designed in a way to really 
not have you interact with it much. Like, for example, when you're using Apple Maps for turn-by-turn directions and there will be some kind of obstacle coming up on the road, like some road work or some rerouting or something like that, it will show you like a dialogue for that, but it will automatically dismiss itself. It will have this little like reverse progress bar that ticks down and then dismisses itself. So it goes to a lot of lengths in order to kind of discourage you from even touching the screen and even interacting with it. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it makes perfect sense. Just like you said, you know, you don't want to be reading. Well, I want to, but shouldn't be reading a text message <laughs> on the screen. But um, but it does get frustrating at times. And the other thing that I've noticed is that one of my favorite use cases for CarPlay is when I'm in Aaron's car, my wife's car, and you know, her car is paired to her phone. But for whatever reason, uh, I want to play something like maybe my son has requested a certain song and I want to play that on Spotify or what have you. And I can connect my phone to her car via cable and it starts CarPlay reasonably quickly. But the problem I have with it is that I can now no longer use my phone. And what I mean by that is it is assumed that CarPlay is kind of taking over your phone and is a second, it's, it's a, it's not screen. What, what is it in the Mac? It's not extending your screen. It's mirroring your screen, if you will, if that makes sense. So what, what that means is if I'm just trying to use my phone while Spotify is playing in the background, I can, but if I open the messages app on my phone, because somebody's just sent me a text message while I'm connected to CarPlay, well, guess who's going to start reading the entire car, that text message. <laughs> and it's not that yep. I have like, it's not that I have anything private that I'm, that I'm, that I'm unwilling to share. It's just frustrating because I kn- I want Spotify to keep playing. I'm a passenger. I just want to read the darn text message and reply it. But next thing you know, Siri's coming on board to say, you have a new message from so-and-so, you know, and it's, it, I understand that this is not the use case that CarPlay is designed for, but it gets very frustrating if you're a passenger that's kind of DJing for the car or whatever the case may be, that suddenly that phone is to some degree crippled because of the same thing I was saying earlier, you know, it's just presumably just blitting all this stuff on screen. And, and so when you start doing things on your phone, when you open an app on your phone, if there's a CarPlay equivalent app it will open that that app in the CarPlay screen as well. Does that make any sense? It's very, very frustrating. Yeah, I got very, very confused by that when that happened for the first time. And I was like, mm-hmm. what's going on here? Why is it living its own life? And like you say, it should almost be like a passenger mode of CarPlay where you say, yeah. well, mm-hmm. I'm the passenger, please don't do this. Because it's a very, very strong assumption that you are connecting your own phone as a driver and you know it should just do... Like it should just run through the through the infotainment system, basically, and which is both like I guess an advantage of it in some ways because it is taking your distractions away from the phone, um, but at the same time, when you are a passenger, it's really really frustrating. I am the passenger in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, another thing that um, that kind of made me think about CarPlay was. For me, it feels a lot like how kind of Watch OS 1 was working. Because like you mentioned, Casey, uh, CarPlay kind of works in a way where the infotainment system is just becomes a renderer and it just sends the touch events back and the phone is like the brain of the operation. And it kind of feels the same way as Watch apps felt, where it, they're not as sluggish, but sometimes it can be really slow when, especially if you're doing a lot of things uh, at once and you're switching between different apps and you may, you know, switch between your navigation, you want to change some song. And sometimes you can really feel like the pain of this thing going back and forth, even if it is over a cable. Uh, have you ever noticed something like this, Casey, where, you know, it really feels like a little bit sluggish because it has to make that round trip? 
Yes, with an asterisk. So the other problem with CarPlay is that not all head units are created equal. So I recently did a, view, a review of the Volkswagen Golf R, and that head unit, I could never put my finger on exactly when or why or how, but it always felt at least slightly laggy. So I do agree with you. However, on my wife's Volvo, I almost never get that impression. So I don't think that the, the that Volkswagen has like a underpowered or crummy head unit. It's just something about their implementation of CarPlay. Occasionally, like when you scroll a list of like, say, artists in the music app or something like that, it seems like there's a latency where I'm sure I do have some of that on Aaron's car. To be honest, I haven't tried doing that exact operation in a while, but but I very rarely am using CarPlay on Aaron's car and I think, oh, hurry up, would you? And so it, it really depends on what the particular car manufacturer has chosen or head unit manufacturer has chosen to do. So yeah, in the Volkswagen, I, I felt very, very much the same way. But in the Volvo, it seems fine. And so it's, it's kind of weird. And I'm actually testing a Honda right now, and it seems to be kind of in the middle. Normally, it's pretty ah. good. But every once in a while, I'm like, what? Oh, I guess it's just a stutter. You know what I mean? It's very yeah. weird that way. I knew I should have trusted my Swedish heritage and bought a Volvo instead. <laughs> <laughs> you traitor, you. So to, yeah, that end, exactly. to that end, how important was CarPlay when you bought your car? Was that just a, a bonus or was that like a requirement? It was pretty much a requirement. I mean, both from the sense that I was very intrigued by it and I really wanted to test it. And I never, ever bought a car before. So I felt like, well, now that I'm finally doing this, I might as well just get CarPlay because I'm really, really curious about how it works. Uh, but... Also, like you also mentioned, it was really like a future-proofing mechanism yep. where presumably uh, CarPlay can get updated and it, and it already is getting updated all the time and it gets you know the new UI, new features and things like that. So I really like the fact that when I plug it in and CarPlay is activated, it just takes over the whole thing. So you know Volkswagen is probably not going to keep updating their uh, software or their UI at least for free. <laughs> so having that uh, that extra future proofing is really really nice. Yeah, I felt the same way. So when we bought Aaron's car, you know, it was for her. So I mostly left her to her own devices with regard to what she ended up wanting. But one, pretty much the only hill I died on was this car will have CarPlay because yeah. just and it was exactly the phrase you used a moment ago. It was future proofing. Because yeah. I don't want to have to feel like I need to buy a car in two years because I, you know, the, the, the infotainment is garbage and I just can't stand it anymore. Now, as it turns out, the Volvo infotainment is fine. But, but you get my point is that, you know, this CarPlay, just as you said, is always going to be getting better whether or not Volvo gives us, you know, software updates for the, for the display, the, uh, for the rest of the infotainment. So for me, it was absolutely a requirement, which is really crummy because generally speaking, we don't have any particular desire to buy brand new cars, but... CarPlay is only in the last year or so really starting to gain momentum. And so if you want a car with CarPlay, it's possible but difficult to find something used that supports it. And so that means, as you well know, that you're you're almost certainly going to be buying something brand new, which is a real bummer. But uh, I don't know. I, I really like CarPlay. It is not perfect by any stretch, but I really, really like it. I wish it, um, I don't think it supports this in the, in the Volkswagen. It certainly does not in the Volvo, but I wish it supported uh, showing a little map on in the in the display that's in the gauge cluster. So the, the, Aaron's oh, yeah. Volvo is a full digital dash, and I would love to have a little mini display of the map in the dashboard, so I didn't have to look 
all the way over at the infotainment, which sounds ridiculous. But when you're driving at you know 70 miles an hour and whatever the equivalent is in, in kilometers an hour, I guess 100, 110 kilometers an hour, um, it, it's it's nice not to have to look over and just look down and see. And, and actually, Aaron's car is a heads-up display, so it would be even nicer still if, if CarPlay supported <laughs> that. And my limited yeah. understanding of Android Auto is that oftentimes that is supported for an, in, in Android Auto. And so I don't know if that's a limit of the particular cars I've driven, and maybe there are CarPlay cars that do support it, or if it's CarPlay itself. But I would love to be able to have like a little m- summary map in the gauge cluster or even the heads-up display if possible. From what I know of how CarPlay works, I don't think that's possible with the current implementation because the, the CarPlay UI is a different idiom from the iPhone mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it kind of just projects that separate idiom UI to the, the screen. So I guess a, heads, a heads-up display would be a different type of screen and the UI would have to be different. So maybe in iOS 13... <laughs> yeah, but it would be really nice because the built-in navigation system in Volkswagen supports that, that you mentioned, Casey, where you see a little mini-map, or not a map, but you see like where you're supposed to turn next, for example, right, exactly. and then how many meters and things like that. And that is that is really, really useful. And that's the one thing that I really miss because uh, when I started using uh, Apple Maps for navigation, I was... You know, I didn't really know what I was going to think about it because I'm kind of a Google Maps kind of guy. Uh, but I've really come around on Apple Maps in the car. Like Apple Maps right now, at least the roads that I've been driving has been really, really good, like really above my expectations and really responsive in ter- terms of, you know, showing, you know, if there's an accident or there's road work and things like that. But so so Apple Maps, very, very pleasantly surprised by that. But I was a little bit disappointed when I switched from the built-in navigation to Apple Maps that I didn't get that little little screen in front of me, which is very, very convenient. Yeah, I agree. And then one just final note on Apple Maps. I I don't dislike Apple Maps. I don't have any particular love for it either. It's it's a thing. It, it remains a thing <laughs> in my world. Um, but one thing I will say about Apple Maps, Maps that I love is that their information density is perfect. And what I mean by that is as you're driving at a high rate of speed, they'll maybe show you like, uh, what what one or two cross streets are somewhere in front of you, but they won't show you every cross street. Additionally, the way they show you the name of a cross street is like a little flag, if you will. So it's always oriented in you know in, in completely horizontally. It's not the sort of thing where they try to print the text in on top of the road and maybe the road is running north south you know what i mean or vertically yeah. i should say it's it's really really good and then when you when you approach a turn they'll make sure that they zoom out i believe it's zoom out so you get a bird's yeah. eye view of what you're doing but then when you're just driving they'll give you kind of a 3d view of what's in front of you it is so unbelievably well thought out and it's stuff that on paper is really simple. Like, of course, when you're, when you're approaching a turn, go to the bird's eye view. And when you're not doing that, just show a couple of roads in the, in, you know, somewhere in the distance, but the way they do it is really, really, really well done. And I think that Google maps tends to do a little better with routing and tends to do a little better with traffic and certainly ways even more still, but my goodness, Apple Maps does such a great job with information density. I, I, I really enjoy using it in that sense. And so if I'm not doing like a multi-hundred mile journey or a seven-day trek like you just did, John, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. if, if I'm not doing something that involved or you know, if I know traffic isn't a big deal, 
I'll choose to use Apple Maps because I think it's the most pleasant and easy to use. It's only when I have an occasion where I'm doing like something that's really, really long or going to Washington, D.C., where the traffic is really terrible. That's when I'll start looking to Google or Waze. And, and I just wanted to commend Apple on the job they did with the information density in Apple Maps because it's really good. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And the way it zooms in and out very, mm-hmm, very fluently mm-hmm. and or fluidly, and it's all beautiful. Like it's it's Apple at their best, basically, when they just go that extra mile to just make it really, really pleasant. Even if you're just like staring at it for like, you know, 0.2 seconds as you're driving, it looks really, really nice. And it always communicates to you in a very, very clear way, which is, yep. you know, great in the car. I love that you said they go the extra mile. it's all for casey you know well done well done Uh, how is it in brazil is apple maps a disaster in brazil or not too bad oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) um it was unusable before um i think it's been usable since ios 11 and i'm pretty sure we still don't have turn-by-turn navigation i'm not 100 percent sure but i think that's the case Hmm. i didn't know all right I was uh, pleasantly surprised that we even have like lane guidance and things like that here in Poland. I thought that was like a US only kind of thing. But no, it's like full blown turn by turn navigation. It works really well. So yeah, good on yeah, you, Apple. The best map here is Waze, um, but I don't recommend using it in Rio. If you ever come to Rio, don't use Waze, use Google Maps. <laughs> in Rio, use a helicopter, right? Yeah, that, that's what you have to do. <laughs> no, 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 that's Sao Paulo. All right, of course. All right. So speaking about cars and CarPlay and these kind of things, uh, we want to kind of round off this episode by talking to you a little bit, Casey, about your recent adventures or the start of your new adventure (laughs) as a as an indie. And you've started your YouTube channel, which I really love, by the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, Casey on Cars. uh, Really great stuff. And um, you, you've you've now gone indie, you've left your jobby job, as you call it, mm-hmm. and uh, you do YouTube, you do your podcasting and things like that. So tell us a little bit about the decision-making process first and foremost. Like, how did you decide that this was a good time to go indie? Yeah, um, I could go on for hours and hours and have on, on my shows. And so if you want the long and boring version of this story, I encourage you to listen to, say, Analog or ATP. Absolutely. But um, but the short, short version is I have two young children. I have a three-and-a-half-year-old. Actually, he's quickly approaching four at this point, And I have a seven-month-old. And it occurred to me that I would always want to be home with them, of course. But especially before my son, the elder one, before he goes to kindergarten, and I don't know if that translates to where you guys are, but basically the, the very first year in public school, before he starts public school, where he's going yep. five days a week all day long, um, yeah. I'd really like to be there for him for a little while before that time happens. Because once he starts kindergarten, I'm not going to see him except outside of what effectively is working hours, you know? And so if I'm going to try to be more available for my family, now is the time to do it. In fact, maybe even a year ago was the time to do it. And so I looked at the situation in front of me and I actually liked my job. It's not that I was, you know, trying to leave a burning building or anything like that. I enjoyed my job, but it occurred to me that if my wife and I make smart financial decisions that we can, we can be okay without my jobby job. And, you know, if I'm smart about the way I do things, I can continue to, to make a living off of the podcasting and a couple other things that I'm, that I'm working on. And Casey on Cars on YouTube is not making me any money yet, but uh, hopefully will be soon. And admittedly, that will probably be pennies, but still, <laughs> pennies are more than none. And yeah. 
And so basically we thought this was a great opportunity to, to do a few things at once. It's a great opportunity to be at home for the kids and for Aaron too, but mostly the kids. Um, it's a great opportunity for me to try to kind of scratch these itches that I haven't been able to scratch and kind of pull on these threads like the YouTube stuff. Um, I am hopefully if I ever have the time, I've been so busy, which is weird. I didn't expect to be, but if I ever have the time to, uh, to, to sit down and write, I I'd like to write a book on RX Swift and maybe, you know, whether or not I write that book, maybe I can come back and we can nerd out about that another time. But, uh, I'd love to write a book on RX Swift and maybe even, you know, put together a course where I could go to a company and teach about the, you know, teach RX Swift or something like that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I have this small iOS app I'm working on. And so I've got my hands and all these different, you know, all these different uh, worlds. And I'm just trying to make the time and find the time in order to kind of execute on all of them. And so I told my job in, I don't remember when it was like June ish. Um, Yeah, it was right before WWDC. I told my job, Hey, um, a month from now, I'm going to be done in America. It's you, you can leave basically immediately, but it's very uncouth. And so generally speaking in America, you give, you give two weeks notice and sometimes it's more, but generally it's two weeks notice. And I thought, you know what, let me tell my job a month out, you know, Hey, I'm going to leave in a month. So I'm giving you more than enough time to figure out how to be okay without me. And to be clear, like I was the most senior iOS developer by a fair bit. And there was, there is, um, one other full-time developer and a, and an intern and the intern is exceptionally good, but she's an intern. She's not there all the time. So, uh, I felt like I owed my work a long time to kind of figure out how to survive without me. And from what I can tell, they're surviving just fine, which is how this always works out. But, um, but I was worried. And so, uh, starting in July, I have been, since the very beginning of July, I've been independent and, I had this vision of being able to, you know, sit on the beach drinking pina coladas or or what have you. And as it turns out, I feel like I'm even busier now than I was before, <laughs> which is a great problem to have. Don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining, but it was, it's, it's been surprising how busy I've been, which is, which is good overall. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's very interesting. Like I recently made a transition. Like I'm not, I wouldn't call myself like full indie at the moment uh, because I do client work, but I am technically independent because I, you know, run my own business and these kind mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very similar to me, like when I left Spotify where I worked before uh, and I went independent as a freelancer, uh, you kind of start viewing your time very, very differently. You start, you know, planning a little bit more. You start realizing that you can't do everything at once, even though you you could, uh, you can't just, you know, spread yourself too thin and you start having this like more sense of self-management, I think, than you might have had at, you know, your normal job where things are a little bit more arranged usually. Yeah. And I've been starting to do just a little bit of what I would call 1099, basically contracting work. And I don't, I don't expect that to be a large part of the Casey List business, but it is interesting because I used to do uh, contracting as part of a firm. So, you know, one company would employ my company to send one or more of us over and, and finish a project. Right. What, and what you're talking about is what, what I'm, what I'm doing now, which is where, you know, you or me as an individual, maybe we'll be part of a team, but we are individuals going to that team, you know, in, in order to help out. And so I'm doing just a spot of that right now. And it is interesting because now I need to make sure that, you know, when I'm, when I'm sitting down and working in that context, I am not 
checking Twitter. I'm not goofing off. I am not watching a video in the corner of my screen. Like I got to be working because my time is exactly what's getting billed. You know, I'm billing this company on, on my time. And if I take four times longer than I should in order to complete a task, like that shouldn't be their problem. And I guess if I was a less scrupulous person, I could just do that. But you know, you, you strike me as much the same as me, John, that that's not the way you roll. It's not the way I roll. And so I want to do the best I possibly can for my client. And well, right now it's only one, maybe it'll be more. Um, and so I want to make sure that I'm doing my best possible work and doing it as quickly as possible because, you know, that's the thing with, with hourly work is that not only do you need to do it well, but you need to do it fast. And, and, you know, as we, there's that triangle, the mythical triangle, what is it? Good, <laughs> good, fast, and cheap. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, exactly. And you can, you can typically only choose two. And so I try my darndest to make sure I'm good and fast and, you know, maybe I'm not, as cheap as, 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 as I could be, but that's okay. Cause I'm proud of the work that I deliver. And it's just, it's a different, it's just a different way of looking at things. And it's also funny because, you know, despite the, the majority of my, now the majority of my money is coming from podcasting and that's been fairly reliable for a pretty long time now for me, but it's still very, very scary because it used to be like, Oh, Hey, podcasting money came in today. Isn't that nice? What a nice bonus. But now it's, <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, where's that money? Oh my God, where's that money? Oh my God, where's that money? <laughs> like, even yeah. though, you know, it's fine in the grand scheme of things, everything's fine, but it just takes on this whole new level of stress. And, and that's the thing is that admittedly your jobby job could tell you that you're fired at any day. Like I would never want this to happen to Mr. Rambo, if you please, but you know, tomorrow you could go to your job. Well, I guess not tomorrow, but you know what I mean? On Monday you could go to your jobby job and they could say, you know what? We closed down. You're going to have to find new work. Is that likely? No, probably not, but it could happen. And the same way that maybe tomorrow all, all of our podcasting just goes away and I wouldn't hope for that either, but it could happen. But Holy cow, when you're the one when, when to some degree, you're the only one that's guaranteeing that the paycheck is coming in. That's a new level of stress that even (laughs) though I expected it, I didn't really expect it. If that makes sense. Yeah, uh, it's interesting because I did the the opposite. Uh, I used to be an indie and I did my apps and some contracting work and other things. Uh, And I joined a company uh, more than a year ago uh, because I wanted to have the the experience of working as a software developer for a semi-big company. It's not a huge company, but it's a big one. And um, yeah, it's different because when uh, I get the money from Chibi Studio, which is my, my main side uh, project, the, an app that I, I have on the App Store, and it sells uh, quite a bit of in-app purchases. And when I, uh, that money comes in, it, it's exactly like you mentioned. It's like, oh, hey, there's this money here. Uh, mm-hmm. my, my bills are paid. My investments are done. What do I do? What do I do with this? I, I guess I. I uh, go for a helicopter ride. Um, <laughs> I was going to say Mac Pro, but you're, as always, you're, you're fancier than me. And I was going to say, let's hit the bars. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and if I were to, let's say, quit my job or get quitted from my job, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I would, uh, I could survive on, on that money, but it would be really rough because uh, what if there's a month where we don't sell as much, which has happened before? Uh, what if Apple decides that our app is gambling and takes it oh, out of the yeah. App Store? Uh, yeah. Depending on uh, Apple and App Store money is really tricky. What if they decide that 
mais Plunking violates the developer terms of service and they decide to terminate my developer account. So uh, I, I wouldn't be able to like survive on that and be happy with it and not be constantly worrying about the the income. So yeah, yeah. if I decide to, to go indie again, I'll have to figure out something that doesn't involve having to depend on Apple to, to make a living. Yeah, I yeah, agree. Absolutely. And, and I, I can't, maybe this is just my experience and I'd be curious to hear what you think, John, but I, I think I am a far better developer, be it indie or otherwise for having had both experiences, you know, for, for being a one man show and for being a part of a big machine and, and Spotify is even bigger still, but, but to me, I think I appreciate what it's like to develop code in the context of a big business where you can't just shoot from the hip and just hope that things work. And I'm assuming that Spotify is like that in the, in, in the sense that I, I presume Spotify is very deliberate and, and whatnot. But certainly at my job, we were very deliberate and we didn't just shoot from the hip and ship whatever we wanted and just hope it didn't crash, you know? And I not to say that all indie developers are like that. I don't mean to imply that, but I think that you know, let's take unit testing as an example, perhaps not as popular amongst the indie community as maybe it should be. <laughs> and so yeah. I think I, I, for one, am very glad that I've had both experiences. And so Gia, I'm, I am glad that you're getting both of these experiences because be it if you decide that being a cog in the machine is better or be it if you decide that being indie is better, there's certainly advantages to both. And I think that you're a better developer for having lived both experiences. But what, what do you think about that, John? Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, as a developer, there's really nothing better than being able to look in kind of a crystal ball and seeing your future. So working at like a larger scale is always really, really valuable because you learn so many practices and techniques and things like that, like you also mentioned, where you can kind of see that even if I might not need to create all of these crazy abstractions and all of these systems and this you know very complex architecture right now in this little app that I'm working on, I, I know from experience working on these big projects that this is where we might end up and I can kind of plan for that in a different way and I can pick yeah. up these skills. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the same when I was working in Spotify. I love to hang out with people from Facebook and Google and Twitter and Apple because that was my way of kind of looking into the crystal ball then because, you know, at the team I was working with, we had like something like 50, 60 iOS developers and... In Facebook, they had like 10 times that or something, right? <laughs> so that was uh, my way of kind of then kind of trying to plan for the future because you can obviously never look into the future, but you can kind of see some of the problems that someone else at a larger scale have been has been facing. And you mentioned unit tests, and this is another really interesting uh, aspect where, you know, obviously when we were working in Spotify, it was, you know, pretty much mandated that you should write unit tests. I mean, this is this is the way we do things. And picking those kind of things up and that way of thinking and being kind of a little bit convinced of the value of things like architecture, unit tests and things like that, and not just shooting from the hip. Uh, I think, like you mentioned, it makes you a better developer or a more well-rounded developer where you can maybe not always, you know, do everything that you were doing in these big companies because you don't have the time and doesn't make any sense for a small app, but you can, you can at least have those tools in your tool belt. Exactly right. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I think to kind of summarize what you were saying a minute ago, it lets you be pragmatic about when you decide to be an architecture astronaut and when you decide to just freaking deliver. And yeah. it's not, I, I don't think I had a good view of that until I worked in some bigger businesses where 
sometimes they they will sway too heavy in the unit test all the things you know 95 percent code coverage or you know making that up of course but you know what i mean you know sometimes yeah. they, they'll swing too far one way and i think indies tend to swing not always but tend to swing too far the other way of ah screw it i'll always i'll just ship an update you know the app store is getting approvals are happening quick enough who cares and <laughs> i think the, the the pragmatic approach is to be somewhere in the middle and so uh, you know, bringing it back to Guy, I, I think that this is a really, really great experience for you because whether or not you stick with this company or with being at a bigger company, I think it'll really teach you a lot of really great lessons, which isn't, I'm not trying to imply you're not a good developer now. I'm just saying it'll teach you a lot of really good lessons that I, I know I at least couldn't, couldn't have learned or wouldn't have learned without having had that experience. Yeah, just like the experience of having many users and the weird yeah. things that mm -hmm. happen when you have over a million users, uh, weird crashes and uh, edge cases that you usually don't have to deal with uh, when you're indie, unless your indie business is doing really well. <laughs> like <laughs> I have uh, with Chibi Studio, we have tens of thousands of users, but we don't get uh, so much weirdness as on my daily job where we have um, at least a million users. So... Yeah, Oof. it's a very different experience, and I've got to work with uh, APIs I wouldn't work with uh, probably uh, being indie. Like when uh, Apple Pay launched in Brazil in April this year, and we were one of the, the businesses, one of the apps that was there on day one with support oh, for Apple awesome. Pay. And we worked with Apple, and we signed an NDA and everything. Oh, uh, cool. So, yeah, it was cool to, to, to work with uh, an API that I would probably not be familiar with uh, if I wasn't working uh, in this area. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that comes to mind is code review, where, you know, when oh, you're working yeah. on your own, yep. uh, you are not really, you know, you don't really have anyone to review your code and you might work with a team. Uh, in my case, I work with a team, but they're all like doing different things like Android or backend or web or things like that. So I'm currently the only iOS developer on my main client project. Uh, but, you know, working in a larger team, you had to not really just defend yourself, but more explain your intentions and you had to document things more and those are things that I still do now as a, as a more like an indie person and, and working on my own. Uh, I still like try to write as clear code as I can. I write tests, I document things because it's just kind of the way I've learned how to do things. And it doesn't come to me as like a waste of time or as a, as an obstacle. It's more like just, yeah, it's business as usual. Yeah, and you learn from it. Like you, you send a pull request and someone reveals it. And, and sometimes you, you learn some cool tricks or some best practices that you didn't know of. Uh, like for my WWDC app for macOS, uh, we started uh, doing a more strict code review process with CI and everything uh, this year. And it, it, I learned a lot from that, from the people who are contributing to it. And especially in the performance optimization side of things, we, uh, we have Alan, uh, shout out to Alan, which he like optimized stuff in the app, uh, which I didn't even know was possible. And I learned a lot <laughs> from that. So it's really cool. Yeah, I, no, I can't agree cool. enough. It, my second big boy job was the first time I dealt with code reviews. And this most recent job, we didn't have a formal code review as much as we just followed the GitHub PR process. And no matter what the particular flavor of review is, I learned so much from code reviews. Even as the most senior person on the team, uh, I learned so much uh, from code reviews because it taught me how other people looked at my code. It taught me, just like you said, that even though people may be quote unquote 
under me, and I'm putting humongous air quotes there, everyone mm-hmm. has good ideas. Just because they're not as experienced as me doesn't mean they're not good ideas or that they can't bring good ideas to the table. And every PR I ever made and every code review I ever did, I always, always, always learned something. In fact, if I was smart, I would just create like code reviews as a service or Casey on code, you know, where like all, <laughs> I'm, all I'm doing is doing PRs for people and I'm not actually writing any code. I'm just doing PRs. And as silly as that sounds, like that could be very valuable because there's so much to learn, especially in a case like you, John, where it's just you by yourself. And maybe you would, you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it might be neat to have someone who you think is a decent developer, just look at your code and say, oh, you forgot about this thing, or oh, what about that thing? And oh, try this. And that could be really, really useful. I don't think any indies are going to pay for it, but it would be useful <laughs> nevertheless. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe like a little indie, you know, collective or something where everyone code reviews each other's code. Exactly. Might be no, tricky really. with NDAs, but you know, it could work. I completely agree. I have actually done that. Uh, not. Uh, I've been on the other side. Uh, someone... Uh, contacted me and asked me if I would be willing to spend some hours reviewing an app that they made to like write a report for the, their client to assure that the, the code was sane and the, the, there weren't any problems. Um, and I accepted the job and I actually found some issues and reported the, the issues to them and it was kind of a code review as a service sort of thing. And there you go. It was actually enjoyable. Yeah, I've done a few of those assignments as well, and it's uh, it's always a lot of fun. Casey, is there something more you'd like to talk about here? It's so early for me then that uh, I don't I don't have a whole lot of experience with it yet. And you know, like I was saying earlier, the thought was to be here for my kids, you know, before they started going to school. And and basically, my goal is if I can go the about two years before my son gets into kindergarten, then it's successful. And even if I if I pull a gee and go back to working for the man, if you will in a couple of years, like I still consider that a, an unbelievable success. And in a perfect world, maybe I don't ever have to work for anyone else ever again in the, in the traditional sense. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. Uh, if I ever put up a Patreon, then, then definitely <laughs> help me out. I hear, I hear there's other Patreons that you might want to plug one more time just for fun's sake. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's good so far. I'm really enjoying it, but we'll see how long it lasts. I'm just hoping I'm trying my darndest to, to appreciate every moment of it while it's working. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. If you want to see both me and uh, and Rambo become more indie, then for sure, support us on Patreon. That would be super awesome. <laughs> there you go. All right. So uh, this has been a blast. Uh, it's been so much fun to talk to you, Casey. And I think, you know, I, I speak just for myself, but uh, this has been a really nice episode, I think. And hopefully we can do this again, where we have some special guests on the show to, you know, provide some new perspective and to have some really interesting conversations. So first of all, thank you so much, Casey, for joining us and being a guest on the show. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. I I had a blast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So if people want to follow you, uh, you know, obviously check out uh, Accidental Tech Podcast for those of you who are not subscribed yet to that show. It's an amazing show. Uh, We also have Analog, uh, Casey on Cars. Is there somewhere else where people should go to find your stuff? No, I mean, I think that's basically it. I occasionally write on my website, which is caseylist.com, and you can find links to all these other things there. Uh, I've been trying out over the last couple of days, I've been trying out micro.blog. I don't know if you guys are in on this yet, but I am yep. at yeah. lists on microblog. Uh, if you want I to am check me out D there. there. Just, Just GUI? 
Yep. And I am at John Sundell there. All right. Well, I'm going to follow you too as soon as we hang up. But, uh, but yeah, I've been trying that out because Twitter is uh, getting to be an ever more, ever, ever increasing inferno of a dumpster fire. So I'm trying to wean myself off of Twitter and, and move myself toward microblog. We'll see how it goes. But anyway, but yeah, caselist.com, you can find me. You can find me there. And, and thank you one more time, you guys. I really appreciate it. Awesome. And you can also find me on Twitter. I am at John Sundell. You can find Mr. Rambo at underscore inside. You can find everything about this show, all of our show notes and all that good stuff at stacktracepodcast.fm. If you want to support this show and see more episodes happen, then please also subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash stacktracepod. And finally, you can also find this show on Twitter at stacktracepod as well. Uh, There will be links to all those things in the show notes as well. But thank you so much for listening everybody and we'll talk to you in two weeks so say goodbye mr rambo goodbye